Good evening to my friends here in the Netmoot and my friends on Twitch. Um, okay, so tonight we are returning to the Treason of Isengard. This is session 13, uh, where we're going to go back and we're going to do the Breaking of the Fellowship again, as this has been, of course, one of the places where we can see Tolkien, I don't want to say laboring exactly, but we can see some several different sort of strands coming together here, right? The Breaking of the Fellowship pro has proven to be a really interesting... Um, has proven to be a really interesting moment um, in uh, in the composition of the text, right? I mean, you think about um, as we shift back to the um, as we shift back to the um, to the uh, Great River again, right? The departure from Lothlorien and the trip down the Great River, and then back to the breaking. Um, you know, I've not been trying to map out the details, like, you know, how many times have we done this exactly, and what exactly is changing each time? I mean, it would be possible to go through and kind of map it out, but obviously my chief interest in these things is the big picture, right? Watching the larger stories develop. And I think, you know, when we look at it, we can see why we keep coming back to the breaking of the Fellowship, right? Because it's really this sort of crux in the middle of a bunch of different stories. In fact, I think you could even go so far as to say that the breaking of the fellowship is another one of those moments kind of and it's not as not nearly as dramatic as when the black rider comes in and and you know and and changes the entire story right from a hobbit sequel into something that Tolkien doesn't even understand right moving forward it's not nearly as dramatic as that but in its way it's actually kind of like it you know, I, I would I would put it on the short list of really pivotal moments uh, in this story because think about the first version of the breaking of the fellowship, right? Um, when it happened at the you know at the tongue, right? That that uh, you know that that wedge shaped chunk of land there at the junction of the uh, of the Morthond, I mean the Silverlode and the Anduin, right? Um, uh, so it took place right there in, in southernmost Lothlorien. Um, you know, we had Boromir's treachery and everything. Uh, and and it, so it happened right away right there. We got no journey down the river. Um, we got none of the sort of deliberations about things. And of course, we were also, we've been talking about how it seemed fairly clear that the sort of the remit of the Fellowship of the Ring was never really supposed to go past uh, past that point, right? Like, there, there there, didn't seem to be an expectation that they would go with Frodo into Mordor, and that seemed to be the source of the, the sort of uh, problem. Think also about those outlines. Think of all those one-chapter things, right? As Tolkien knew that, like, you know, Aragorn and Boromir had to return to Minas Tirith and something was going to happen there, there was going to be a war that happened, but so many of the details of that, you know, the whole, the whole, you know, so much of what becomes book three and book five gets compressed into just these what he saw as what three chapters basically right they go down to Minas Tirith they're besieged Saruman comes in Sauron comes in uh Treebeard and Gandalf come and rescue him and uh and that was pretty much it right um the breaking of the fellowship becomes a moment where the story not only changes in its quality, but also really expands and turns outwards in some really interesting ways, right? Where we have uh, the fellowship, which is eventually going to split apart, but is not really going to break. It's not going to just dissolve anymore, right? Um, so, I mean, but the three main stories that I would 
point to anyway, the three main things that we can see that keep forcing him back to reevaluate this moment is first Lothlorien, right? That remember that it's it's really Lothlorien and the departure from Celeborn and Goad first the presence of Celeborn and Goadrio, and then the growth of Celeborn and especially Goadriel, and therefore the increase of significance of their time and their stay in Lothlorien that first shifted it down, right? So the whole context and events surrounding the breaking are first kind of pushed from one side by the development of the Lothlorien story. Then we have Frodo's journey, and we see him working through and developing Frodo's journey, and in especial how it starts and where it starts and how Gollum finds them, right? Those things are all connected to where, so where are we going to put the breaking and how are we going to handle the breaking and what Frodo's response to the breaking fellowship is. And of course, then Boromir's role, which was initially simply as a traitor, essentially. You know, it was a relatively simple role and we see that growing and developing as Boromir's own story changes shortens, but improves, right? Uh, certainly improves uh, from Boromir's, uh, from the point of view of, of, uh, of Boromir and of Boromir's character. Um, and really, so, now notice I don't say the growth of the, like the, the Rohan story and everything, um, because that does not seem to me one of those things that's putting pressure on this. Rather, it's one of the consequences of this, right? Since we have... Uh, all of these reconsiderations, which keep bringing him back to the breaking and redoing the breaking, we finally, like the, what is it, the fourth time, fifth time we've been to the breaking of the Fellowship, we've finally gotten the orc attack, uh, and, you know, which is going to lead to Merry and Pippin being dragged off uh, uh, by the orcs, and and Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas in pursuit. So we're finally bringing in, we, 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 we will come to and discover the Rohan situation because of those changes, not uh, I, not it seems to me that those things are leading to the changes. Um, so I think it's um, it's a real it's a, looking at the breaking of the fellowship is a, is a really fascinating moment and watching these things kind of come to play. So that's what I'm thinking about as we go into yet another treatment of the breaking of the fellowship and as it comes far closer uh, to what we uh, what we know. Uh, in the end than uh, than anything that we have seen before with the breaking of the fellowship and we'll be looking at a lot of those uh, at a lot of those details as we uh, as we move forward so um okay let me pause for a second here before I jump into our slides uh, just to make two quick announcements first I just want to say thank you guys so much for all of your help and support uh, our fundraising campaign was a wonderful success this year our fundraising campaign ended up at over uh, no just about fifty four thousand um, dollars it broke our previous campaign record by more than ten thousand uh, dollars and you know before all, you know, told before I woke up on Sunday, um, we had uh, raised almost $15,000 over the course of the Webathon. It was absolutely fantastic. And uh, we're already 90% of the way uh, to our, our, what we need for the whole year uh, uh, for Signum. So that is just a, a, a wonderful place to be in October, uh, given that our fiscal year ends in July. Um, uh, so that was uh, that was really really great, and thank you so much for um, thank you so much for uh, all of your help and for joining in on that. Uh, and uh, I think I think I see we just uh, tracked down the last of our uh, uh, the last of our trivia winners whom we didn't have uh, an email address for. So very good. I just saw that happen. So that was very good. 
Um, okay. Uh, so again, thank you everybody for and everybody who contributed. If you haven't contributed yet, don't worry. There's still time. You're you 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 still can. Uh, it is not. It is never too late to support Signum and Mythgard and the things that we're doing here. Um, so uh, definitely feel free to do that if you haven't gotten in on it yet. Um, and thank you so much to everybody who did. The other thing that I wanted to make sure to tell people about um, is. We have another regional event coming up. This is, you know, as I've been mentioning, this is something that we're really excited uh, to be getting uh, uh, to be getting started doing uh, more and more. We had our Midwest moot uh, back uh, what a week and a half ago uh, now, which was absolutely wonderful. We had a fantastic turnout. We had 70 people uh, at our first ever Midwest regional event. We're having uh, Tex moot is the next one coming up in January, January 13th. And I especially want to mention it uh, because they are they have a call for papers out right now. So if you think you might be able to come to Texmoot, uh, it's going to be in Fort Worth, as I said, Saturday, January 13th, um, then... Um, you can, please do consider uh, sending in a proposal to give a paper or to lead a discussion. Uh, that would be uh, that would be really cool to have people participating and kind of put on. If you're anywhere, you know, if you are uh, anywhere in the great state of Texas, anywhere in that area, we'd love to see you. If you're not, hey, we're uh, we're expanding. We're uh, we're hopefully we will be at a uh, regional event near you uh, sometime before too long. Um, there's even been some more concrete discussion uh, about uh, doing uh, doing something over there in Europe. I think we're looking into maybe something in the UK before too long. So um, that's something that I think is gonna I think is very likely to, to actually happen uh, sometime soon, maybe in the next uh, in the next year or two. So. I'm 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 delighted. These regional events have been one of the th- I've loved these regional events, and it is something I am very enthusiastic about uh, um, about um, encouraging um, and about attending myself. I am I'm going to try to get to every single regional event we do. Uh, so. Uh, so yeah, that'll be Canada, Laura. Absolutely, uh, Canada moot is definitely something that should happen. We have a lot of Canadians involved in Signum and Mythgard. Um, I mean, goodness, there's a significant percentage of the Signum staff that's from Canada. Actually, we've got a we've got a we've got a great con- Canadian contingent. Um, it would be really cool to have uh, something in like uh, you know the Toronto or Montreal area. I kind of favor Montreal because then we could get nor- you know northern New England involved in there too. I'm only, I live only about like four hours away from Montreal, so um, anyway, yeah, yeah. So Canada, a Canada moot would be great. We're working on a couple things on the West Coast, um, Pacific Northwest. Brianna, hey, uh, yeah, no, we we're we're talking about that actually to do something up in like Portland or Seattle or something like that would be you know in that area would be would be really great would love to do that so yeah no that's something uh something that we're um that we're thinking about if you live in one of these areas and this you know you're excited about this and you're thinking hey maybe i could help you know to uh you know to organize that and help to make that happen send us an email send us an email at uh, info at signumu.org and and uh, we would love to hear from you and uh sort of you know get you in contact with our events folks um so uh, anyway, yeah, we'll see. Uh, we'll we'll see how that goes, <laughs> Peter. I see that Mythmoot Helsinki, yeah, yeah, Finmoot, right? That'd be great. Finmoot would be would be awesome. Um, 
Yeah, probably not in January, uh, Peter. I think that probably wouldn't uh, wouldn't wouldn't work out. Um, and yeah, you know, Druid's Fire, you'd think that we might have one in Boston or something, right? Given that I live 45 minutes from there, right? I, I, I've lived in New England for four years now and I've, you know, we've never organized a New England moot. How is that possible? Um, but anyway, yeah, yeah. Oh, and Thomas, we've, we've got a couple, uh, California possibilities actually, um, Definitely thinking about something down in uh, down in San Diego. I'd love to do something in San Diego. Um, actually, kind of thinking of doing something in San Diego in the general region of uh, um, of uh, of Comic Con. Actually, uh, sort of on the on the outskirts of Comic Con while everybody's in town would be really would be really fun. Um, anyway, so we're uh, we're yeah, Druid's Fire. You should. Uh, you should, we should talk. You and I should talk with uh, the Standing Stone folks about doing something together around PAX East. That would be, that would be really good, actually. Would love that. Absolutely would love that. Um, but anyway, so yeah, we're going to be, um, we're, um, I'm, I'm have, especially after now, you know, we, we've been doing our events for a while. I've really enjoyed the events that we've done how awesome it was to reach out to a new area and to be able to connect with folks that I'd never been able to connect with before out in Iowa has really kind of, um, you know, addicted me to, to that whole undertaking. You know, I'm really, I'm now very, very enthusiastic about the regional moots and really hoping that we'll be able to, uh, uh, to, to get in on that. Now, Nicole mentions Kansas. Got to tell you, um, not Kansas specifically, uh, but we are thinking of, uh, so the, uh, the Midwest moot that we did in Iowa this past time, um, we're thinking of rotating it, not holding it in the same place all the time. And, uh, Kansas city is a forerunner for, I know that Kansas city is not in Kansas, uh, but still, uh, it's closer to Kansas than Iowa is. Um, so we're gonna, we're gonna, we're, we're, we're thinking about heading in that direction actually. So, uh, uh, Midwest moot in Kansas city, uh, in, um, uh, 2018, I think is, is a very real possibility, something actually in the works. So we can, uh, branch out some to our, uh, to our, to our folks in the Great Plains. Uh, anyway, okay. All right. So, but anyway, but don't forget the next up Tex Moot. So those of you down in Texas, anybody, Dallas, Fort Worth, Waco, uh, in that whole area, um, uh, we would love to, to see you, uh, at Tex Moot in January. Um, Cool. Nicole, could you send me an email about that? I'd love to connect you with some our, our folks in Kansas City. So if you'd like to, if you'd like to volunteer, that'd be great. So yeah, totally send me uh totally send me uh, 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 an email about that. So okay. Um so let's go back to the treason of Isengard now. Those are my two things. Thank you for the awesomeness of the campaign and your generosity. And uh don't forget about text moot coming up and consider submitting a paper. So um Let's return. We were um, uh, we were with Sam and Frodo and Minas Morgul. You may remember, right? And it was really interesting to see Tolkien seeming to run into some logistical problems. Right, the concept. He clearly started with the concept, right? The concept of Frodo being captured and Sam having to come rescue him. And of course, 
naturally he's going to be starting with these concepts. Remember when he did that very first outline, the very first outline that gave the, the, the story of Sam and Frodo going to Mordor? Um, remember how much he was neglecting even things like crossing distances, right? How he had Gollum sort of shuttling back and forth to check in with the Nazgul and then rush back over, right? I mean, you know, and, and it was clear he was not thinking in those kinds of pragmatic terms. He was just thinking of the concept, like what it was that he wanted to happen. Now, in this second outline, which is still an outline half of the time and uh, in-depth narrative half of the time, we see him digging into the whole thing a little bit more, right? We see him digging into the logistics of the situation, but he still clearly has the concepts first. So Frodo's going to be captured and Sam is going to rescue him. But as we were going through, we could see some practical issues were rising, right? Um, How do they get out? Um, As Sam himself said in that outline, the ring won't cover two, right? So... We last the last passage we were looking at last time was Sam going out of the gate, right? And so we had uh, remember he 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 wanted more horror, so we had the the sentinels, right? And the sentinels were at the gates, the outer gates of Minas Morgul. So as they were trying to escape, and Sam had to go through, and he had to he had to just brazen it out, right? Swagger that was his word, right? He had to use swagger to get through the gate. He's dressed up in orc mail. First, he has to use his will to get through, and then uh, he has to apparently make... But then notice he gets accosted by the guard as soon as he does make it past the Watchers, right? As soon as he does make it past the Sentinels. Um, And then it seems Tolkien kind of has them sort of escape and run away and not be caught because they're running in the opposite... They're running into Mordor instead of away from it, so uh, the pursuit follows the wrong direction, you know, and therefore loses them. Um, but he's, um, he's really, um, not clear on the details of how this is going to work. And it seems like he's running into some, as the story keeps developing, um, and he keeps discovering the thing that happens next, he seems to be running into some pretty serious troubles, right? Um, now, Mariel, that's a really great point. Uh, Mariel points out that it's interesting that, his first, when when he says I need more horror, the regular goblin stuff isn't going to do in Minas Morgul. Mariel says his first impulse is to add spiritual horror, in and not bodily horror or mental horror. Yeah, so Mariel, we're not going to get we're not going to get torture. We're not going to you know. There's lots of ways that you could introduce more horror, right? But instead, more ghostly stuff, right? The addition of the Sentinels is more horror. You know, does. Ratchet up the horror, right? Um, but it, um, but it doesn't. Uh, but it is a very particular kind of horror. It's, you know, Sam having to wrestle with spirits of some kind, right? Um, of a, quite an indeterminate kind, and they're never really going to be determined. And I agree, Karita. They are very, they are very creepy. And Josiah, that's a good word. Tolkien's horror is uncanny. He does go for the uncanny. Um, yeah, yeah. Now I agree, Yana. Sam Swagger is cool, right? And uh, I, 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 um, it would have been fun having Sam using the word swagger. We get that. We get that cut out. Um, but, um, but anyway. So let's go back, and he- here we see our heroes in a nice pickle, as Sam might say. He doesn't say it, but 
he might say it, right? That's one of his phrases. Um, but I think we can see Tolkien getting himself into a bit of a pickle here, too, right? Look at this passage that he strikes out. An alternative would be to make the gate impassable. That is an alternative to the passage we were just looking at of Sam swaggering out, the, you know, overcoming the will of the sentinels and swaggering out of the gate. An alternative would be to make the gate impassable. The alarm is sounded. The city is aroused. The vulture, Black Rider, arrives in the main square. Frodo knows that the ring, and Frodo at once knows that ring is useless. He feels almost discovered. Messenger says ring is still in the town. He feels it. So he strikes all this out. But notice, uh, where's he going to go? So I, I, I talked about discovery before, right? This stuff is all exactly the logical things that would happen. The orcs capture Frodo, and when they capture Frodo, they know. Remember, Gollum has betrayed him, has betrayed Frodo to the orcs, right? They know what they're capturing. They know this is the ring bearer, that he's meant to have the ring. So, of course, they immediately send a really quick message to Barad-dûr to tell the master, who immediately sends a Nazgul to come bring him, right? Of course he would, right? Of course the whole city is going to be aroused. How are they going to escape? The only hope they had of escape was the ring. Like, Sam was going to have a hard enough time escaping. At least Frodo could use the ring. Oh, except when a Black Rider shows up, now he can't use the ring, right? So, you know, Tolkien comes to this point, and you can you can feel it. It's like, where are we going to go? How do we get out of this, right? Um, given the situation... So, he started with the situation, Right? Frodo captured by the orcs, Sam having taken the ring off of him, but going after him to rescue him and bravely extracting him, right? Um, this is uh, um, this is the situation, this is the scenario that he wants to do, but as he's making it happen, there in Minas Morgul, which is the very natural place for it to happen, right? Especially since, remember, there's been a lot of buildup about Minas Morgul, right? And Minas Ithil. Um, given its connection to the Dúnedain, and the heirs of Isildur, in particular, back in the Council of Elrond in this last version, um, there's even sort of more emphasis on... Uh, um, on uh, there's more emphasis on uh, uh, Minas Ithil and Minas Morgul than, I think, remain, really, in the published text. But anyway, so it makes perfect sense that he would be taken to Minas Morgul. Um, but then what, Right. Now, what do you do, right? Um, how can they possibly actually really escape from this place? And you'll notice it's not too long after this that that this draft outline kind of peters out, right? It looks as if Tolkien's kind of painted himself into a corner here. Um, he can see how the orcs and the Nazgul and Sauron would act under these circumstances that he's created. And how to make a realistic escape scenario in this situation is really tough. And it's interesting to me that it is in this context that the Lothlorien cloaks get an upgrade, right? The Lothlorien cloaks become magical cloaks in this moment as he's looking for some kind of mechanism to get them out of Minas Morgul and keep them from being recaptured. The gray cloaks of Lorien must be made more magical and efficacious. He's writing this like in the margin, right? Are these garments magical? asks Frodo. We do not know what you mean by magical, said they. They have virtues, for they are elvish. They were green and gray. Their property is to blend perfectly with all natural surroundings. Leaves, boughs, grass, water, stone. 
Unless a full light of sun was on them, and the wearer was moving or set against the sky, they were not invisible, but unnoticeable. Okay, so we see him thinking through here what is the nature and what is the virtue of these elvish quotes. Now keep in mind, this uh, virtue, of course, in this sense, is a, this is one of those Tolkien words, right? It's, it's, it's an important word. Um, that is to say, it's an archaic definition of the word virtue. We don't use... Nobody, I don't think anybody uses the word virtue this way anymore. Um, you know, virtue is, is it means like you know, goodness. It's, it's, a, it's a word about morality, right? Virtue is. Um, the word virtue in this sense, sense means power. Um, uh, and you can see it, the only place, the only other place that I ever see it nowadays is like in the King James Bible, because it's using archaic words. You can see the word virtue used in the sense in which Tolkien's using it there. Um, it means power, but it means like a power that is native to something. It doesn't mean like a power that something wields over something else or something. Like if it has a virtue, it means it has the ability to do something, right? Um, so when the elves say they have, the cloaks have virtues for their elvish, it's like, well, they do stuff, right? I mean, they do, um, but of course they don't know what they mean by magical. And again, notice how typical this is, right? He's, he's jotting in the margin, hey, maybe, uh, Maybe their cloaks are magic cloaks. So what does he do? Immediately, this dialogue between Frodo and one of the elves at the time when they're given to them about whether or not they are magical. You know, this, this, this chunk of dialogue immediately pops itself into his head for him to go back and insert into, into the Lothlorien chapters uh, later on. Um, but, um, yeah. Now, Kimber, you're right. This is a very... Uh, the virtue of the cloaks is very germane to hobbits. Uh, as Kimber points out, the the cloaks seem to have a very similar type of magic uh, that the hobbits have to go unnoticed when needed. So yes, it's this is particularly well-suited uh, to hobbits, you would think. <laughs> Caritas uh, suggests uh, a synonym would be it uh, It has a feature, right? It's uh, one of its features. Yeah, that, that, seems, that seems fair. Um, yeah, and Arthur, you're absolutely right that being unnoticeable is very different from being invisible by being removed from the real world into the wraith world. And I agree, that seems to be... Exa- I would suggest that that's... Uh, or rather, I would agree with you that that seems to be one of the things that he's implicitly saying there when saying you're not, they're not invisible because he's already kind of de- defined invisibility, or at least the invisibility granted by the ring. Um, as sort of passing into the wraith world. Let there be no question about whether or not, um, you know, anyone is passing into the wraith world um, in the, you know, when they're using their cloaks like this. Um, Yeah. Um, So, Thomas, yes, uh, I agree with you. The emphasis on the word natural does imply that um, there are going to be some places where they can't, where they're not going to be unnoticeable, where the cloaks would fail them. Presumably, Thomas, yes, because they're next to some kind of, uh, uh, some kind of man-made artifact, right, with with which it will not blend in. Um, But see, here's the, to me, kind of the funny thing, right? On the one hand, we can see him reaching for this as a way to try to solve the, um, the Minas Morgul problem, right? How can I, how can I get them out? 
maybe well maybe their cloaks are magic cloaks right except thomas his rules that he makes seems to exclude it in exactly this kind. So maybe in the backdrop of like the, the twisted and, you know, the, the horror statues and rock of, uh, of Minas Morgul, maybe that wouldn't count. Maybe the cloaks wouldn't work there anyway. Right. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, so it, it's 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 interesting to me that he it's almost like he immediately second guesses himself. Obviously, he doesn't second guess himself completely, as this does seem to be a description of the virtue that the 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 cloaks are going to retain in the story. But it's not going to do Frodo and Sam any good in Minas Morgul, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, um, and it's hard to disagree, Karita. The elven cloaks of Lothlorien. It's hard to imagine anything from Middle-earth that would be more useful to have than a Lothlorien cloak, right? Um, but uh, anyway, okay. So so he's still having trouble, right? Look at his, his last outlines, right? His last thoughts here. Struck out. It could be Marion Pippin that had adventure in Minas Morgul if Treebeard is cut out. What? <laughs> right? Maybe Merry and Pippin could go to Minas Morgul. Now, first of all, keep in mind, cutting out Treebeard is not as big a deal here as it would seem like. Because remember, that's always been isolated. It's never been narrated. All we know, Merry and Pippin are somehow going to get lost and they're going to end up being connected with the giant Treebeard who's going to turn out to be a pretty swell guy after all. And he's going to come and help to raise the siege at Minas Tirith, kind of Bjorn-like, right? In other words, really the only role he plays in the plot is he's a pretty underdeveloped character so far. He's just some giant who everybody thinks is mean but turns out to be good, right? That's pretty much the Treebeard concept at this point. And remember... Standard giant still, as far as we can see, there's no evidence that he's yet a tree, right? That he's yet a tree man um, uh, in that sense. So, okay, um, he's uh, he's a tree man in the giant sense, right? Uh, a man as high as a tree. Uh, anyway, so, okay. Um, he, so cutting out Treebeard, in a sense, no big deal. We just need to find somebody else to come in and help them raise the siege. But since we didn't even hear what he did, in fact... You know, seemed there would be other uh, there'd be other candidates for that kind of thing, um, and we wanted to get Minister uh, Marion Pippin captured anyway. So why not Minas Morgul instead of Treebeard, right? Um, the thing that's most alarming to me, Nancy. Nancy's thinking about this train of thought as alarming. The thing that's most alarming to me is the context in which he suggests this. That is, in the context of. I'm having a hard time extracting Frodo and Sam, but it's pretty critical to extract Frodo and Sam, or at least Frodo, right? We've got to get the ring out of Minas Morgul somehow, or else the story is not going to work, right? So in that context, he's like, hey, maybe they capture Merry and Pippin instead. If we're going to put two hobbits in an impossible-to-escape scenario, let's do it to Merry and Pippin instead of Frodo and Sam, because, hey, Merry and Pippin were extras anyway. I mean, I find that alarming, <laughs> right, Nancy, that I'm I'm alarmed by that train of thought as well. I mean, I don't know. I honestly can't 
understand. I can't see. Like, what is the function of having, like, what will Marion Pippin accomplish? Or what will even be accomplished by Marion Pippin um, going over there, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm really, I'm really not sure. Jennifer, I think that's perfectly fair, uh, to say that Mary and Pippin are still characters in search of a purpose. Um, that they sort of recruited Treebeard over to their side was the, the high water mark of their, uh, contributions to the later story, right? Um, now who knows exactly where he's going to go in, and Yana, you're right, he's already toyed with the idea of killing off Pippin, right? That Pippin was going to die in an unexpectedly brave fashion, Right. So, I mean, when I read that sentence, honestly, it sounds to me like he's considering red shirting Marion Pippin. I mean, I that I, I'm not I mean, I could be wrong, but that's what it sounds like to me. Um, uh, so anyway, from Dire Castle Gorgos and Nargos, it would be only 70 miles. They could creep round edge of Arid Lithui. Sam must fall out somehow, stumble and break a leg. Thinks it is Kraken ground, really Gollum. Makes, make, Frodo go on alone. Frodo toils up Mount Doom. Earthquakes, the ground is hot. There is a narrow path winding up. Three fissures. Near summit there is Sauron's fire well. An opening inside of mountain leads into a chamber, the floor of which is split asunder by a cleft. Frodo turns and looks northwest, sees the dust of battle, faint sound of horn. This is Windbeam, the horn of Elendil, blown only in extremity. Birds circle over, feet behind. It is then at night, before ascent of Mount Doom, that Frodo sees the lone eye, like a window that does not move and yet searches in Barad-dûr. Description of Barad-dûr, seen afar. Mariel, I don't know who is blowing the horn, but... You know, I guess we have enough, like, Elendo artifacts floating around in the story that maybe adding another one isn't, you know. Um, my suspicion, Mariel, is that Windbeam, the Horn of Elendo, is going to basically... Yeah, James, it seems to me kind of two things, right? On the one hand, we're going to get the Horn of Boromir, but we're also going to get the Horn of Helm Hammerhand. Um and I think that Helm's horn and Boromir's horn, both of them seem to sort of inherit elements of, you know, the 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 one singular awesomeness that is Windbeam, the horn of, horn of Elendil, blown only in extremity, is going to kind of disperse between those two other horns. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Stephanie, I also am a little amused by... Uh, you thought it was a crack in the ground, but it's actually Gollum. I'm trying to understand that, Stephanie. I, my, I guess what that means is he falls and breaks his leg. Sam falls and breaks his leg, and he thought that he just it was a crack in the ground that made him fall, but it was actually Gollum. So he doesn't accidentally trip and break his leg. Gollum sabotages him and breaks his leg, right? Um, I think that's what, so not like, oh, hi, Gollum. I thought you were a crack in the ground. Like it's not, um, I'm not, the specificity of that, um, thinks it is a crack in ground, really Gollum suggests to me that he has a little chunk of narrative in his head there. 
I'm not sure I'm seeing the picture that he's seeing there, but, um, but again, the chief story elements are the same, right? Clearly, Sam must fall out somehow. He wants Frodo to be alone at the cracks of doom. And Gollum's. The persistence of Gollum and Gollum's danger to them and betrayal, right? Um, now, Brian, this is not the first suggestion of the the hosts of Minas Tirith going to battle at the Black Gate as a distraction. It's not explicitly as a distraction even yet. Um, we knew before, in the very first outline, remember, the, the only army movement we have is the Nazgul leading the army out of the Black Gate. Um, and then there's going to be battle. Presumably there, on Daggerlad, or maybe over in Athelion or something. Um, at that point, in that outline, which is that very first Frodo and Sam outline, it's not even explicitly a siege of Minas Tirith. It gets shifted to Minas Tirith um, when he goes and outlines the, the other side, of you know, the rest of the company's story. Um, but Anyway, yeah, so uh, I guess Sam should be grateful that he's just getting his leg broken here instead of pitching himself into the cracks of doom as he did in that first thing. Um, so, Brandon, Dire Castle. Dire Castle, Gorgos, and Nargos. I think that those are the precursors of the Towers of the Teeth. Because remember, there's still only one way into Mordor. Um I don't think there's been any indicator that there's a back door. Because notice they're still, they're still creeping around the edge of Arid Lithui from Minas Morgul. So I think that this means they're still going back north and then through, um, through the main gate, right? The only gate. Um, what confuses me is that that, that, was, that pass was called Kirithungal before, um, you know, the Spider's Glen, remember, as he sort of approximately translated it. One wonders where are the spiders, right? There's like Sheila and her siblings were there before. Um, they were specially recruited by Gollum. Do they have to be specially recruited? If they're not specially recruited, they won't show up, right? So that they're able to sneak in the second time when the first time... I, I'm not really sure about that. But again... I'm not sure about that because Tolkien is really unspecific about these things. The geography um, is one of the things that seems on the latter end of the stuff to the stuff to work out. You know, um, yeah. Um, so Mariosi, Mariosi says, I still don't feel like I fully understand how Tolkien is thinking of Gollum here. Um, is he a synecdoche of the dangers? Uh, seeking the ring, or a more appropriate villain for a sequel to a children's story, or... Okay, so let's think here. Um, that's a really good point. Um, what is the sort of thematic significance of Gollum, right? Remember, in in the published text, of course, Gollum becomes, especially for Frodo a sort of cautionary tale, right? Um, part, at least, of the role that Gollum plays in the story is to be some kind of a there-but-for-the-grace-of-God-go-I for Frodo, right? Um, and that's, of course, the element that Peter Jackson really sort of pounces on and plays up a lot. And I think that, you know, his playing that up really works very well. 
right up until Sam tells Frodo tells Sam to go home, but uh, nevertheless, notice uh, even Tolkien said that Sam has to fall out somehow. Um, but anyway, anyway, um, I don't see. My point is, I don't see any any evidence of that here. Um, any kind of bond or connection between Frodo and Gollum? We've. I don't recall any um, any indicators that Tolkien is thinking in that direction with Gollum. His role has been hunter, and then he is purely intimidated into serving them, right? This is a bad thing, remember? This is the place, you'll recall, where Tolkien said the ring got control over Frodo again, right? Frodo starts to fall under the power of the ring when he uses it to dominate Gollum's will. So Gollum is... I'm not sure if enslaved is too strong a word, but daunted. Daunted was the word, right? He is he has been daunted into serving he's been intimidated, daunted into serving Frodo. He is Frodo's unwilling servant. Uh and then he betrays him. Uh so he is corrupted by the ring, and he is treacherous as a consequence, right? Um what we keep getting from him, Mario, in this story so far is treachery, 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 right? That's what we keep um that's what we keep coming back to with him. That's his role in the story again and again. No hint of that potential um repentance, right? Or of that at least sort of potential, that sort of positive bond that he establishes with Frodo. Don't see any hint of that. So, so as Mariel says, how is Tolkien thinking of of Gollum here? I think that he's like a different kind of villain, right? It sort of shows. I don't know, Mariel. I guess I would say shows how Frodo is open to different kinds of bad guys, you know? Um, it's... Uh, he's one of the many dangers that Frodo faces. Um, there's the Nazgul, there's the orcs, there's the spiders, there's... Gollum, right? Um, but he seems to be simply one of the enemies all the way through. Um, so we'll certainly see Gollum's story expand outwards, and it'll be interesting to watch sort of how that develops as we get there, because I don't see much sign of it yet. Um, now, if you're thinking, but wait a second, didn't he already make Tolkien's or Gollum's character sympathetic in the book, right? Um, didn't he already have Bilbo pitying Gollum? So shouldn't the pity of... Uh, Shouldn't the pity for Gollum already be a, a a thing right as it comes in in chapter two? Well, remember, not yet. It didn't come in in chapter two. It's not there in the first edition text. That's added later. That stuff comes in as a consequence of the development of Gollum's character here. It doesn't uh, come before it. It's not part of that process, or it is, but it's a later part of that process. Um... Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, Brandon says he's a he's an on the ground villain in a way that Sauron can't be until he gets to the cracks of doom. Um, yeah, yeah, he is uh, he is a villain at hand, right? So that the dangers are not always just dangers out there who might possibly spot us, right? Um, yeah, he's sort of a challenge along their journey rather than, but also helping in their journey. The untrustworthy guide rather than the hidden menace or the looming menace. Um, okay. Now, Frodo being alone is important. John Caldwell was just pointing this out, and I agree with him. He says he's really intrigued with Tolkien's push to have Frodo do this alone. He keeps working to strip everyone away from him. He's, he already has a final confrontation with Gollum uh, and Frodo from one of his first outlines of the destruction of the ring, making the battle within Frodo concerning the power of the ring more overt than it becomes in the published text. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And that drive to solitude, to being alone, is connected explicitly, as we'll see later on, with uh, the power of the ring over him, right? So, so yes, this, um, he's putting Frodo in a worse and worse, um, a worse and worse position here. All right. At a later stage, my father penciled in various developments to chapters 22 and 23 as renumbered. The synopsis of the former he altered thus. Black orcs of Misty Mountains capture Merry and Pippin, bear them to Isengard. But the orcs are attacked by the Rohiroth on the borders of Fangorn, and in the confusion Merry and Pippin escape unnoticed. Also added here was Trotter is led astray by finding Orc Prince. He follows the Orcs, believing Frodo, Sam, etc. captured. He meets Gandalf. To what happened to Gimli and Legolas, he added, went with Trotter to rescue Merry and Pippin. So we can see the beginnings of this thought starting to emerge again as he's thinking back over the breaking again. Um, the orc band coming in and the orc band bringing hobbits to Isengard uh, becomes um, uh, becomes a, becomes a, a, an important an important thing. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. Back to Minas Morgul. we got to figure out something for Sam and Frodo. Um, well, no, no. This isn't Minas Morgul. Sorry. We're going back to Lothlorien again, right? Um, here we see him dealing with thinking a lot about the time issue with Lothlorien, which is a really fascinating little interlude uh, in the development of the narrative here. Um, Sam looked at the moon again, slipping down now swiftly to the horizon. It is very strange, he murmured drowsily. The moon, I suppose, does not change its courses in Wilderland? Then I must be wrong in my reckoning. If you remember, the old moon was at its end as we lay on the flat up in that tree. Well, now I can't remember how long we were in that country. It was certainly three nights, and I seem to remember a good many more. But I am certain it was not a month. Yet here we are, seven days from Lorien, and up pops the new moon. Why, anyone would think we had come straight from Nimrodel without stopping a night or seeing Karas Galadon. Funny, it seems. 
And that, Sam, is probably about the truth of it, said Trotter. Whether we were in the past or the future, or in a time that does not pass, I cannot say. But I think till Silverlode bore us back to Anduin did we return to the stream of time that flows through mortal lands to the great sea. At least, so I guess. But maybe I dream and talk nonsense. Yet do either of you remember seeing any moon in Lorien, old or young? I remember only stars by night and sun by day. First of all, uh, notice how much less um, uh, notice how much less authority Trotter speaks with here. In part, of course, because he's never been to Lothlorien before, so this is his first experience of this kind of phenomenon. Um, but this question of does you know first, of course, during the Lothlorien chapters, we saw the question of you know how much does he do with Lothlorien, right? How much. Uh, um, how much time do they spend there at all? You know, or did they just pass through? And do they say on the first day that they meet them, the time has come for our parting? Um, but as the Lothlorien story developed, we saw them spending more and more time there. Or did they, right? Um, and so here we seem to have... Um, we seem to have the actual suggestion that time, in fact, came to a stop. And we see Tolkien toying with that. These are three different paragraphs that he drafts, each one of addressing um, Sam's question about the moon. First one. The power of the lady was on us, said Frodo. I do not think that there was no time in her land. There are days and nights and seasons in Lothlorien, and under the sun all things must wear to an end sooner or later. But slowly indeed does the world wear away in Karos Galadon, where the lady Galadriel wields the elven ring. So this suggestion... And it's interesting that it's Frodo who is made to speak authoritatively in this uh, uh, concerning this point, is that the power of the lady does in fact slow down time. It can't stop it entirely, but it does slow down time so that as many days pass for them there, only a very small amount of time passed in the rest of the outside world. Second version. Legolas stirred in his boat. So, hey, no, wait, let's give the authoritative statement to an elf, right? Nay, I think that neither of you understand the matter aright, he said. For the, el- for the elves, the world moves, and it moves both very swift and very slow. Swift because they themselves change little, and all else fleets by. It is a grief to them. Slow because they do not count the running years, not for themselves. The passing seasons are but ripples ever repeated in the flowing or endless stream. Yet beneath the sun, all things must wear to an end at last. So we have this authoritative statement, this elvish perspective by Legolas, which is emphasizing the perspective, however, right? All he says is that beneath the sun, all things must wear to an end at last. So time does pass for the elves. And then he talks about how, how time perce- seems to them. But he doesn't answer the question. But wait, did we actually pass a whole month in Lothlorien? Then we get the third version, Frodo saying again, But Lorien is not as other realms of elves and men. The power of the lady was upon us. Slow for us there might time have passed, while the world hastened. Or in a little while we could save her much, while the world tarried. The latter was her will. So it could go either way. She can speed up time, or she can slow down time, right? The latter was her will. Rich were the hours, and slow the wearing of the world in Caras Galadon, where the Lady Galadriel wields the elven ring. Now, um, 
Why is he doing this? Do you think? You see where he's getting this? Where is this coming from? Why are we worried about time? Why are we speculating about time passing differently in there? This is... Yes, exactly. Um, remember Rip Van Winkle, right? This is a traditional fairy tale motif. It is very common, as Mariel suggests, when you cross into fairy. One of the things that, as a mortal, you've got to be concerned about is if you come back to mortal lands, which is not guaranteed, um, you never know how much time has passed. Uh, the, uh, the messing with time is a known feature of fairy, not just of fairies, but of capital F fairy, of the land of fairy. Um, time does not work the same in the land of fairy as it does here. Now, um, this is interesting to me largely for this reason, that this seems to me the clearest indicator that Tolkien is thinking of the encounter in Lothlorien, has come to think of the encounter in Lothlorien, as a real fairy encounter in a traditional fairy tale sense, right? I mean, it has that kind of quality, but that quality really increases as Galadriel increases, and as their time in Lothlorien becomes more and more significant. Um, Jennifer, exactly. See also Narnia. That's exactly why that happens with Narnia, too. It's, it's traditional. Narnia also is a fairy situation, right? When they, uh, if you go in through you know, a piece of your furniture and end up in a magical kingdom uh, and then you come back out, the fact that time, something weird with time has happened is uh, part of the um, part of the sort of expected imaginative landscape of that, of that kind of world. Um, so, again, so to me it's very interesting to see him thinking about Lothlorien in this way. Now, we know ultimately, ultimately he's going to reject this, right? But we see him not just toying with it, but really implementing it, right? The discrepancy with the moon that Sam has seen, in fact, proves that he's right. Time has been messed with. The new moon is the new moon right after the, the sliver of a moon that he saw in the flat. It is as if no time, or practically no time, has passed. Um, I love how Frodo states she can do it either way. Galadriel can do it either way, right? She can, uh, uh, she can uh, make time pass for you slowly while the world hastens, or uh, you could save her much in only a little bit of time. So she can make time slow down for you, or speed up for you in Lothlorien while in the world outside no time passes. The latter was her will. That's what she, but she could easily have done it the other way around, right? They could have come out of Lothlorien and found it 20 years later, 100 years later, 1,000 years later, right? Perfectly, perfectly within her power to do. And that's a pretty normal kind of fairy queen power, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, our first encounter with the Argonoth. So again, as we as we're going down that great river journey, we're adding more and more of these familiar features, right? 
The great pillars seemed to rise up like giants before him as the river whirled him like a leaf towards them. Then he saw that, that they were carved, or had been carved many ages ago, and still preserved, through the suns and rains of many forgotten years, the likenesses that had been hewn upon them. Upon great pedestals, founded in the deep water, stood two great kings of stone, gazing through blurred eyes northwards. The left hand of each was raised beside his head, palm outwards, in gesture of warning, maybe, and refusal. In each right hand there was a sword. On each head there was a crumbling crown and helm. There was still a power in these silent wardens of a long-vanished kingdom. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, um, notice the power of the statues. You know one thing I couldn't help but notice? Doesn't the Argonoth, as he's describing it here, kind of sound a lot like the Sentinels in Minas Morgul? Right? I'd never thought about them together. I'd never thought about those two things in conjunction at all. But, of course... Going through the treason of Isengard here, you can see he's just come up with the Sentinels and is now, uh, and then he throws up the Argonoth thing, right? Um, like the good guy Sentinel statues who seem to be, um, uh, who seem to be, there was some virtue there, but it wasn't, uh, in the, in the published text, there's not this same sense, Right? Um, there was still a power in these silent wardens of a long-vanished kingdom. It's a little more indirect uh, in the book. Uh, and I'm wondering, I, I can't help but wonder if there's some kind of connection there. Um, I don't know. Um, Josiah, I don't really know. Josiah asks a great question. He says, I wonder why the swords became axes later, because they're carrying axes in the published text. He says, the axes always puzzled me, even more seeing that they were swords originally. Yeah, swords would seem to make more sense, right? Um, I don't know. I don't remember when they get changed to axes. We'll have to see that when we come through, if Christopher mentions that or gives any kind of context uh, for the axes. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's cool, Arthur. Arthur points out that uh, just as the Sentinels... Uh, you know, in, 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 in some sense, elvish power is going to get Frodo and Sam past the Sentinels. So an elf stone is getting them past these Sentinels, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, I agree, Marielle, the crumbling crown and helm is interesting, right? Um, and uh, was it Brandon? Yes, Brandon was talking about uh, um, the difference between the silent wardens of a long-vanished kingdom, right, compared to... I mean, this is still the northern edge of Gondor. Gondor may have been waning, but it's not a vanished kingdom, right? Um, but uh, this seems to be... This is a Numenorian thing, right? And the Numenorian kingdom has vanished, Right, because the Andorian kingdom is not the heir of the of the of the Numenorian kingdom. They kicked the Numenorians out. Um, so, um, so yeah, that seems to me part of the uh, Brandon. That seems to me the significance there. Right, um, since the Numenorians 
their kingdom has vanished. We, and, and that's why I take Mariel, the, that seems to me the significance of the crumbling of the crown and helm, right? Their, their, crown is, their crown is decayed. Remember, we still don't have much, clear, much of a clear sense that this is a return of the king kind of story, right? Um, isn't it still true the last we saw of Aragorn at the end of the story? He was going to become lord in Minas Ithil, right? Not really reclaim the, cr- the, the, the throne at all. Okay. In the fair copy of the text of Fellowship of the Ring, in the fair copy, the text of the Fellowship of the Ring was almost reached. So, Josiah, maybe that means the axes. Maybe in the fair copy, he changed them to axes right away then. I don't know if we'll get any more than that from Christopher about the axes. Um, though a good deal of correction as the manuscript, sorry, through a good deal of correction as the manuscript was being written. Trotter's words as they passed through the chasm, fear not, said a strange voice behind him, are exactly as in the Fellowship of the Ring, except in two notable respects. In the stern sat Elfstone, son of Elfhelm, a decisive demonstration of the correctness of the view that Elfstone had reappeared and supplanted Ingold, and under their shadow not has Eldamir, son of Eldakar, son of Valandil, to fear. Um... I'm less troubled. I might just be... Well, not overlooking things. I might just be taking this too calmly. Uh, Christopher was getting all worked up about the fact that Velando is supposed to be only four generations back from Aragorn, when Velando is clearly the son of Isildur. And so he talks in his notes as if he's wondering whether Tolkien is actually considering compressing the entire third age into, you know, a matter of some like five generations. Um, I find myself not as worked up about this as Christopher Tolkien. And again, he, he might be right to think this and I might be wrong. I was not really gripped. Exactly. Julie, that was exactly my question. Julie said, you mean no one ever named their kids in honor of Velandil, the son of Isildur? Yeah. Um, that was my thought, too. I mean, I assumed when I read that, that the Velandal, who is the, what, grandfather of of, uh, of Aragorn, who will someday be named Aragorn again, um, I assumed that he was like Velandil II or whatever. Um, and so when Christopher starts, like, getting all perturbed about Velandil and the move, I was like... Uh, yeah. I, I, yeah, Brian says, isn't it possible that Tolkien just decided he wanted to reuse the Velandal name for someone closer to Aragorn? Yeah. And shift and change the name of the son of Isildur? That also seems perfectly plausible. I mean, either one of those explanations, either that there are two Velandils in Aragorn's family tree, Velandil I and Velandil II, or that he had decided to remove the name Velandil from the son of Elendil and shift it to Aragorn's grandfather, Given how much Aragorn's own name is shifting around, what could seem likelier, right, than he would do something like that? The son of Valendil, like, they're, sorry, the son of Isildur's name has already changed several times, so, you know, why mightn't it again? So it just seems, of those two things, either A, Tolkien is going to reuse slash recycle a name again, or two, he's reconsidering the entire chronology, I mean, that last one sounds really extreme, and I don't see if the, is, 
the name seems to be the only reason we have to think that he's doing that, and I'm not sure I go along with Christopher there, but, um, yeah, yeah, so, um, exactly, Brandon, I was thinking the same thing, how the stewards of Gondor, there are numerous repetitions, like Denethor II, Faramir II, um, yeah, absolutely. And even the fact, of course, Brandon, even apart from the reoccurrence of the same names within that line, uh, in the published text, we also get, of course, people who are named after folks from the First Age, right? Um, you know, including, uh, the good old, uh, including Baron the Steward, right? And Turambar the Steward, most alarmingly, um, somebody really needed to have a talk with his mom, right? Be like, come on, lady. Um, do something here. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, Josiah says, I, I find it more fun than Elfhelm was almost Aragorn's dad. Uh, one thing that I can't keep straight. Here's my biggest confusion. In the whole Aragorn's name is changing around situation, which, like, is fine. Like, I know. Tolkien was, like, considering lots of different names. So, like, I'm just kind of staying the course and letting, you know, Aragorn, Ingold, Elfstone just kind of roll off me at this point. But here's the thing I don't get. Elfstone. Was that meant to be his... Like... Was Elfstone going to be the equivalent of Trotter? Like he wasn't going to get called Trotter, he was going to get called Elfstone instead? Or was Elfstone meant to be his real given name? I think it was meant to be the latter, and that he was probably going to be... But it confuses me, because in some of the places, Christopher describes how he's crossing out Elfstone and putting Trotter in instead. Um, so I'm not really sure if... you know, cause Given that he has the name and the nickname, right, um, was like Ingold and Elfstone... I don't know. I don't know. I'm not really sure where it was supposed to be, but, um, anyway, um, yeah, and Marielle, you're right, it is funny that Aragorn ends up, like, keeping most of the names, right? Ingold drops out, but apart from Ingold, he, he, he will keep Elfstone, right, uh, in addition to his others. So Tolkien just takes the logical expedient of just giving him all the names, right? It's fine. Why choose? All right. Um, Marielle, thinking about Gollum's character here as we were before, and the sort of, uh, you know, thematic function of Gollum's story. Here's, we're going back again, right? Back up to the Great River and back down towards the, um, uh, towards the breaking. This is Elfstone slash Trotter slash Aragorn talking about um, uh, the about Gollum and Gollum's pursuit. I do not think he would dare the passage of the gates, meaning the Argonoth, right? He wouldn't be able to make it through the Argonoth. Um, but he may have traveled far over the hills while we were delayed at Penzarn, uh, Sarn Gebir, as will be. By now he knows the country well, and he will guess too much of our divided purposes, for we have with us what he long possessed, 
and it draws him ever towards us. If they turn west at Pensarn, he will say, then for a time I can do no more. Sooner or later I shall know, and then Gollum can find a way even to the walls of Minas Tirith. But if they did not turn west, there is but one end to the river road, Tall Brandir and Rauros and the North Stair. There they must go west or east. I shall watch upon the east. Likely enough, he spied us with his fell eyes far off from the eastern branches, or even, or some, or from some post among the hills. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, um, Brandon, yeah, good. Brandon is pointing out how among the stewards there were two Turins and a Turgon, right? Uh, and how one of the Turins was followed by the Turgon. Um, quick theory, Brandon. You know what that suggests to me? Um, Turin, Turambar, Turin, and Turin, and Turambar, and, uh, and Turgon. Uh, doesn't that suggest to you that the line of the stewards was getting really apocalyptic at that time? Right? I mean, those are, those are end times names, right? That's why Turin is such a big deal. Because Turin is the guy who's going to kill Morgoth in the battle at the end of the world. Right, um, he's going to come back at the Dagor Dagoroth, and 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 he's going to slay Morgoth with his black sword. Uh, so, you know, Turin's a big deal, and Torgon also was the one who had the power to overcome Morgoth and bring the first stage to a successful conclusion. Right, so, um, you know, it makes me wonder if they, uh, if I would want to look back at the, uh, at the timeline at the, at Appendix B. And see what was going on at those, at those. Did they think the end was near? Right? Is that why they kept giving their, their if why stewards kept giving their sons these apocalyptic names? Anyway, sorry. End digression. Um, I love the detailed reasoning that uh, Aragorn slash Elfstone slash Ingold gives to Gollum here. Right? How he even like goes into Gollum's voice, not quite into his voice. So he doesn't do the s's, but. Um, and he doesn't interrupt himself with my precious at all. Uh, but he, um, uh, he does, um, he still thinks it through exactly as, I mean, the detail with which he thinks what Gollum is going to do is really fascinating, right? And you get the sense, it's hard not to get the sense that this is Tolkien working this out himself, right? As he's going through and drafting this stuff. That once again, you know, the approach to the breaking of the fellowship and the breaking of the fellowship becomes itself very instrumental in him working out. So like this character of Gollum and what Gollum can do and what he can't do and how he's going to approach this whole thing is developing. We've already moved past where we met Gollum before, right? Following Frodo's trail so hard that he didn't notice Sam following him, right? That was Gollum, the hunter, as we saw him before, an effective hunter, but also an oblivious hunter. Um, and now we see him much more cunning. Um, uh, and yeah, Brian, much more able to reason about what the company will do, much more well-informed, frankly, about what the company will do. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Kimber, I agree. I think that this is an important... Uh, point. Kimber makes a great point here. He says, it's interesting that he presents Gollum as intellectually figuring out how to follow them. He's reasoning it through, rather than using his senses like an animal. Um, yes, yes, 
that is really important, I think, um, for understanding, for perceiving Gollum's character at this point, because there are times when he is more like a beast, right? He is going to be described ultimately as if he were more like a beast, sometimes like a dog who was invited for a walk and things like that, right? Um, but, uh, but yeah, so Kimber, I, I agree. I think it's an important thing that we see not only Gollum acting this way or presumably acting this way, but Aragorn, Elfstone, assuming that Gollum is going to act this way. This does invite us to have a different kind of perception of a relationship with Gollum here. Okay. The conversation before Frodo departed from the company alone was very largely achieved at once, but in the fair copy, Trotter says, My own heart desires to go to Minas Tirith, but that is for myself and apart from your quest. This being rejected, probably immediately, and in both texts, in very similar words, he says, Very well, Frodo, son of Drogo, you shall be alone, but do not let your thoughts be too dark, for after you have chosen, you shall not be alone. I will not leave you, should you decide to go to the gates of Barad-dûr, and there are others of the same mind, I think. To this Frodo replied, in the fair copy, I know, and it does not aid my choice. Changed to... I know, and it does not help me at all. Um, remember the significance here. Trotter was always going to go to Minas Tirith, right? That was his plan. Trotter was on the way to Minas Tirith. Um, the dilemma comes in, like, should I... Does he need my help right away? Like, should I be going to rescue Frodo? Right, is his main dilemma. Um but going to Mordor, following with Frodo to the end of Frodo's journey, was not in Aragorn's itinerary at the beginning. Remember, we talked about this. We see that starting, not that starting to change exactly. It's not changed. But we see Aragorn changing, right? He had always planned to go to Minas Tirith. But he planned to go to Minas Tirith after the quest was over. Like, after they got them down here, right? He was going to... But now he can't leave it. Now he is sort of accepting... Frodo's quest is his quest. That his job, like Sam's job, is to see it through, right? To f- to help Frodo all the way to the end, and that's what he's pledging to do. And Frodo here tips his hand a little bit more, right? What it ex- is that he's thinking about. It's no mystery. It's not going to need f- Sam to explain in this scene, right? When he says, I know, and it doesn't aid my choice. Um we can see him openly being concerned about his companions and not wanting to bring them with him. The others remained behind near the shore, but Frodo got up and walked away. Sam watched his master with great concern. Then the company turned again to debating what they could do to aid the quest, hopeless as it seemed, struck out, and whether it were wise to try and end it swiftly or to delay. Boromir spoke strongly, urging ever the wisdom of strong wills and weapons and great plans he drew for alliances and victories to be and the overthrow of Mordor. Sam slipped away unnoticed. If orcs are anywhere nigh, he muttered, I am not going to let Mr. Frodo wander about alone. In his frame of mind, he would not see an elephant coming, or he might walk off the edge of a precipice. Isn't that cool? The elephant and the precipice? Right? Those are going to become events. Those are going to become, you know, adventures on their way to Mordor. They're going to, they're, they're going to almost fall off a precipice, and they're going to see an elephant coming, right? And both of those get brought up by Sam as these random 
examples of how oblivious Frodo is going to be. Um, that is, uh, that is pretty cool, right? That is pretty fun, uh, to see that stuff come in here. Again, I come back to a point I've made so many times about how conservative Tolkien is, how, um, you know, he's like, um, Tolkien is to his revision process what, like, you know, Eskimos are to the carcass of a whale, right? Like, everything gets used, nothing is wasted, right? Everything serves some function and nothing gets thrown away. I feel like Tolkien is like that with his drafts, right? This scene is going to go away, but all the elements of it are going to stay. Boromir's speaking of the strong wills and weapons and great plans he drew for alliances and victories to be and the overthrow of Mordor. We're going to cut that out, right? But we're not going to get rid of it. We're just going to displace it and it's going to become part of his ring-induced monologue, right? Sam's two arbitrary examples of extreme things that could happen to Frodo uh, if he doesn't have Sam to look out for him. Um you know, comes, both of them turn into real events. Exactly. Jennifer says it's like Tolkien practices the conservation of ideas. Yes, it is really almost like that. Um, It is interesting, Arthur and James, that he uses elephant instead of oliphant. But mind, here he's following the norm. Um, This is the second time that elephants have been mentioned in Tolkien's works. Right. When was the first time? And I'm not referring to Yumbo or Ye Kind of Elephant. Right. I'm not talking about the original poem. Um, in The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, where else is, does, is the word elephant mentioned? Do you remember? Trivia contest. This is pretty obscure. I wouldn't even put this in the trivia contest. Arthur, you've got it. Well, you've almost got it. It's not in chapter one of The Hobbit. It's in the beginning of chapter two of The Hobbit. Gandalf's exclamation when he finds that Bilbo hasn't dusted his mantelpiece. Great elephants, he says. Right? There it is. Right? Um, in other words, oliphants are not a thing yet. Right? Elephants is, is standard. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah, it was very obscure. It was very obscure. But the point is, elephants have been mentioned, like they have come up before, um, and they were not called oliphants when they were come up with. So there's no, um, that's a shift he's yet to make to bring elephants more into what? Into Sam's dialect, I think. But, um, okay, so Sam's going to get an early start on following. Boromir's going to get an early start on his ring induced monologue. Sam's going to get an early start in pursuing Frodo. This was one of my favorite moments of this whole this whole version of the of the breaking of the fellowship. When Frodo came down from the summit of Amon Hen and putting on the ring again, vanished and passed down the hill like a rustle in the wind, the primary draft continues. The power of the ring upon him had been renewed, and maybe it aided his choice, drawing him to Mordor, drawing him to the shadow alone. That blew my mind. That is a mind-blowing sentence right there. The power of the ring upon him had been renewed. A turning point has happened, right? 
It's not anymore. This is like what Tolkien said before about daunting Gollum, right? When he uses the ring to daunt Gollum, then the power of the ring upon him is renewed, right? The power upon the power of the ring upon him, which was broken before, presumably by Elrond in Rivendell, as we discussed earlier, gets renewed when he uses it to dominate the will of of Gollum fairly soon after Galadriel has told him not to do- to use his will to dominate others. Um, but now, the power of the ring is renewed when he chooses to go to Mordor alone. Um, and I agree, Tony, that impelling people to isolate themselves, f- themselves from friends and family, that does seem to be a ring thing. Right. We, of course, it happened with Gollum very noticeably, and it happens with Frodo here. But the thing that really blows my mind um, is that the thing that really blows my mind is that that Frodo's desire to go alone is treated in the published text as an almost completely positive thing, whether or not it's wise or not, is less clear, right? And I think clearly, obviously, bringing Sam along is wise. Um, But it is treated as if it were merely self-sacrificial on Frodo's part. I don't see a hint in the published text of this, that the ring is possibly aiding him in his choice. Now, I agree that it does fit, right? Um... Marielle points out, thinking about, we, we were just, for those of you who aren't following along with exploring the Lord of the Rings as well, we just did the Tom Bombadil puts on the ring scene last night. And the thing that really struck me reading that passage through this time is that when Frodo is wearing the ring, he gets up and he starts to sneak out the door of the house. And it's really unclear. Where was he going? What was his plan? Where would he, where would he have gone? Um... And it, it seems pretty clear he's under the influence. We get some pretty good cues that he is under the influence of the ring when he puts the ring on, and then when he gets up to sneak out the door. Um, that does seem to be something he's being impelled to do by the ring itself. Where was he going to go? What was going to happen? So yes, Marielle, that uh, that separation of himself from his friends in the house of Tom Bombadil, that, that, you know, in the house of Tom Bombadil, it stopped, right? It, you know, this, this abortive attempt to, to isolate himself, um, which Tom Bombadil fortunately, fortunately stops. But, um, uh, here we see, we're being told that that same thing is at work. It's not that I can't see this. It's just, this is very different from any reading I had ever had of, um, from any reading I had ever had of, of the published Lord of the Rings, right? Um, that always seemed to be a noble thing on Frodo's part. Um, and, uh, yeah, Tony was also thinking of the of Tom Bombadil's house there. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, James points out, and James Lebeck, I think you're right to say that it's interesting that the text calls it out so explicitly. Um, that sentence is unusually direct. We don't usually get that kind of directness from the narrator telling him that this is what's happening and this is the ring acting on him in this way. The power of the ring upon him had been renewed is a kind of statement that we rarely get in the published text. I agree. And James, 
this sounds to me almost like Tolkien is discovering this, right? And he often seems to do that. He often seems to put stuff like this down that he will take out later, right? That he won't state as directly later on. But he's much more explicit about because I. it sounds like he's just discovering it in that moment as he's writing it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, I agree, Brianna. It's not that it's... I agree with you, and exactly because I agree with you is why I found it so mind-blowing, right? This wasn't mind-blowing in the sense of like one of those scenes in the drafts where something just totally different from the published text is happening, and it's like, wow, I can't even imagine. I can't can't wrap my head around this, right? It's not exactly that kind of way. Um, Because Brianna is pointing out that even in the published text, like, it's, yes, it's self-sacrificial, but it's still not a good idea, right? Um, it's not it, it's not explicitly ring-driven, but there's all, there's not wisdom there, right? Um, and we are led to question it. And as Brenda points out, his decision is spurred on because of Boromir's temptation uh, and Frodo's own putting on of the ring, so there is that element still there. That's exactly, Brenda, why I find it so mind-blowing, right? Because I agree. I think that Upon, you know, in reading this passage, I'm like, of course, right. How could I ever not have thought of that before, right? Um, now, it's hard not to look at the published text this way, right? Um, but yet the published text by itself is very indirect about suggesting anything like this, it seems to me. Um, yeah, yeah, Okay. Boromir's doublespeak is really fascinating to me. He has not returned then? asked Boromir in return. No. That's strange. To say the truth, I felt anxious about him and went to seek him. Did you find him? Boromir hesitated for an instant. I could not see him, he answered, with half the truth. I called him, and he did not come. How long ago was that? An hour, maybe. Maybe more. I have wandered since. I do not know. I do not know. He put his head in his hands and said no more. Trotter looked wonderingly at him. Um. <laughs> Nancy says he's a worse liar than Obi-Wan. <laughs> um. He's making a good effort at equivocating, Right. Um, but he needs to spend more time with the witches in Macbeth if he really wants to become a good equivocator. Um, anyway, I, I called him and he did not come. I could not see him. Um, I think that this is... Yeah, it, it is... I mean, you're right, Tony. He successfully equivocates. He just doesn't do it well enough to deceive anybody, right? Trotter is obviously not really fooled here. Um, But remember what he was doing before. Remember old Boromir in the previous versions? Old Boromir was actively feeding them misinformation. And it was due in large part to um, Boromir's false information that Merry and Pippin were lost because they didn't start looking for them in time. Um... And, uh, yeah, Brian, it makes me wonder which direction is the arrow pointing for Boromir here, right? Is this just sort of showing him as being, um, 
you know, less competent as a traitor and deceiver? Or does this show with him actually struggling with that, uh, um, actually struggling with that um, question already, right? Is he, is he, is he trying to come back? Is he, um, is this him not wanting to lie and yet not wanting to tell the truth either, right? I mean, and Brianna, I agree, the putting his head in his hands and saying no more, that does seem like a sign of remorse. At least this is a mind in doubt, right? This is somebody who is in the midst of a moral crisis. I do not know, I do not know is miles better than the, again, the active lies um, that he was feeding them before in order to throw them off the track. Um, so I agree. I, I, I do think that we see him heading for redemption here. And then he becomes officially not a traitor. Horns and sudden cries in the woods. Trotter on the hill becomes aware of trouble. He races down. He finds Boromir under the trees, lying, dying. I tried to take the ring, said Boromir. I am sorry. I have made what amends I could. There are at least twenty orcs lying dead near him. Boromir is pierced with arrows and sword cuts. They have gone. The orcs have got them. I do not think they are dead. Go back to Minas Tirith, Elfstone, and help my people. I have done all I could. He dies. Thus died the heir of the Lord of Minas Tirith, Trotter at a loss. He is found standing perplexed and grief-stricken by Legolas and Gimli, who have driven off a smaller company. Trotter is perplexed. Was Frodo one of the hobbits? In any case, ought he to follow and try to rescue, or go to Minas Tirith? He cannot go in any case without burying Boromir. With help of Legolas and Gimli, he carries Boromir's body on a bier of branches and sets it in a boat and sends it over Rauros. Um, Nancy, I agree. The word perplexed here, twice, is interesting, right? Um, he is found standing perplexed and grief-stricken. Trotter is perplexed. Um, It seems to me here he's expanding on perplexed, that this is not two different kinds of perplexed, or he's doubly perplexed. Um, I think he's grief-stricken over the loss of Boromir, Terra, because I think it's about the hobbits that he's perplexed. Um, that Those are the two things, right? The two things are he's perplexed and grief-stricken, grief-stricken about Boromir, perplexed about the hobbits because, you know, was Frodo one of the hobbits? And any, So I think he's, Tolkien is coming back and expanding on the perplexity, right? Wherein lies the perplexity of Trotter. Um, <laughs> Tony Mead says he's not sure how much longer he can handle Trotter as a name. Oh, come on, Tony, surely we've gotten this far, right? I mean, we're already at the breaking, all the way up to the breaking of the Fellowship. Um, uh <laughs> I'm fine with it now. I mean, you remember I was complaining about it before, but um, I'm, 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 I've gotten used to it. Totally gotten used to it. Um, yeah, Mariel, I wonder, is Boromir suggesting that they should abandon Merry and Pippin? I mean, he does point out that he thinks... <clears throat> 
He doesn't think that they're dead. As if that's going to be relevant information, right? Like, you should go and rescue them. But then he immediately says, go back to Minas Tirith Elfstone and help my people. Um, so, it seems that Boromir is laying the perplexity upon Aragorn, like, not deliberately, like, hey, trying to perplex you, bye now. Um, uh, yeah, I think... Um, Yeah. It seems to me we have here, again, this is, you know, still very much outline form, right? Um, in the midst of Boromir's speech, the perplexity emerges, right? This is the first time that we see Aragorn in this kind of perplexity. Um, and remember, they kind of gave Merry and Pippin up to die before when they had just wandered off and gotten lost and they couldn't find him. And they're like, oh, well, remember Legos and Gimli at that point were like, guess we'll go home, right? And they take off up for the north. Um, so uh, I would say this is actually an upgrade. Um, perplexity is an improvement, uh, really. Yeah. Um, notice that the the charge that Boromir lays on him to go to Minas Tirith clearly weighs very heavily on Aragorn here. Because um, remember, in the published text, Boromir lays it on him to go to Minas Tirith, but that's not what he's perplexed about, right? He's weighing two things. What am I supposed to do? One of them is not go straight to Minas Tirith like Boromir told me to do, right? He's debating, do we pursue Frodo or do we go try to help Merry and Pippin? Um, let's abandon the lot of them and just head straight for Minas Tirith, not on the table in the published text. But it seems to be here. He's primarily debating between Merry and Pippin and Minas Tirith. Right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Mariel, that's a good way to... Um, um, that's a good way to think about this passage. That, like, as a... Mario says we're beginning to get the right emotions for the scene, right? Um, you know, Boromir's grief and Aragorn's uncertainty are major roles. So yes, the details are still not all worked out, but the primary sort of emotional trends definitely closer. And James, I agree. This is at least partly the author trying to work this out, too. I think that's always what we're seeing in these outlines, is uh, him sort of discovering which way is the true one, right? Which way works. Um, yeah. That is interesting. James Stevens points out that he, uh, first, he was self-consciously taking up Gandalf's role when he pledged to Frodo that he wouldn't leave him, right? Uh, and now he feels the need to take up Boromir's role and go to Minas Tirith on Boromir's behalf. And James, that seems especially important when the going to Minas Tirith, he had resolved on going to Minas Tirith, but remember, he was not super enthusiastic about going to Minas Tirith back in the Council of Elrond. Um, so, yeah. Trotter up on Amon Hen. Um, and by the way, how cool was that scene when Christopher Tolkien points out that the uh, at first the ring was supposed to be granting Frodo sight, 
right? So that from the top of Amonhan, which is just some rocks that Frodo was standing on, um, he was able to see some things much more clearly because he was wearing the ring, right? And then it works the other way around. Then the virtue of seeing visions in the distance uh, becomes attached to Amonhan itself, and uh, fr- the ring becomes instead this shroud of grayness, right? I thought that was really cool. Trotter stood up and looked around. The sun seemed to be darkened, or else the eastern clouds were spreading. He could see nothing in that direction. As his glance swept round, it stopped. Under the trees he saw orcs crawling stealthily, but how near to Amonhen he could not guess. Then suddenly, far away, he saw an eagle, as he had seen it from as he had seen it before above Sarn Ruin. It was high in the air, and the land below was dim. Slowly it circled. It was descending. Suddenly it swooped and fell out of the sky and passed below his view. As Trotter gazed, the vision changed. Down a long path came an old man, very bent, leaning on a staff. Gray and ragged he seemed, but when the wind tossed his cloak there came a gleam of white, as if beneath his rags he was clad in shining garments. Then the vision faded. There was nothing more to be seen. At the end of the text, and I think immediately, my father wrote, The second vision on Amonhen is inartistic. Let Trotter be stopped by noise of orcs and let him see nothing. Let him see nothing. That sounds really harsh, doesn't it? Um, Yana, you are not the only one that finds it weird that those hills, Amonhen and Amonhla, are not are never tied to Manway and Varda. Um, Yana, the first time I went to Amonhen in... Uh, um, in Lotro, I, that's exactly what I was looking for. I was looking for any, like, I was wondering if they were going to put any, like, is there going to be like an eagle or something, or, uh, you know, something to indicate, like a sapphire, I don't even know what, um, something to sort of suggest connection to Manway and the Hill of Seeing. But um, it is amazing to me that, that that never, that connection is never made explicitly either, Yana. But anyway, um this is really okay so Trotter is having these visions now as Christopher points out these are very unlike the visions that Frodo had at least unlike the ones he had at Amonhen they are very like and indeed one of them is practically identical to the visions that Frodo had in the mirror of Galadriel um so one of the things we can clearly see is Tolkien sort of sorting out what the visions you see on Amonhen are supposed to be about. Um, Brandon, I think the the eagle here is the one... He's not picking up the body of Gandalf. Yes, he's dropping off the body of Gandalf. Um, he is transporting Gandalf into this region. Um, remember, in this draft, very soon after the breaking of the Fellowship, they, that is Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli, run into the resurrected Gandalf immediately, like right outside of Parth Galen, as they begin their journey. Um, so Gandalf has been brought very close to them by the eagle uh, here. So, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, the fact that Trotter's visions on Amon Hen are very Mirror of Galadriel-like is uh, is kind of cool, but also kind of strange. I mean, again, it indicates that he's not really resolved on what kind of visions they're supposed to be. Um, but um, 
the idea that what he's going to get here is not just information that he can then use to shape his course, but he's going to be granted visions. Um, visions of the near future. He's going to meet Gandalf very soon, right? But, um, but yeah, this kind of vision. Is, and then Tolkien's like, forget it. No visions for Aragorn. He doesn't need them, I guess, apparently. All right. I have to go soon, even though I know I started late, but... Uh, let's do one or two more. I love this passage. This Clearly Boromir is redeemed now, right? Um, you know, we had him dying well and confessing before he died. Um, but this passage really puts the uh, uh, really puts the, the 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 feather on the cap, right? Really puts the candle on the cake. But in Andor it was long recorded in song that the elven boat rode the falls in the foaming pit and bore him down through Osgiliath and past the many mouths of Anduin and out into the great sea, and the voices of a thousand seabirds lamented him upon the beaches of Belfalas. Um, this mythic note, right? This reference to the mythic significance of the death and burial of Boromir in later ages uh, in Ondor um, conveys more clearly than anything else could, I think, the fact that Gan that he, um, Boromir, has been not just not just that he's not going to be a traitor anymore, but that he has been redeemed, that he has repented, and that he has been forgiven. And I agree, it's a it's a powerful image, Josiah, that uh, uh, the the lament of thousand of a thousand seabirds uh, on the beaches of Belfalas is uh, uh, is a really powerful uh, a, a really powerful image. So good guy Boromir, redeemed Boromir, has officially returned. Then, last slide for tonight. Um, I think that Frodo returned from the hilltop wearing the ring, said Trotter. Here's his analysis, right? He may have met Sam, but I think not. Frodo was probably wearing the ring. I think Sam guessed Frodo's mind. He knew it better from love than we from wisdom, and caught him before he went. But that was ill done, to go and leave us without a word, even if he had seen the orcs and was afraid, said Gimli. Notice Gimli's the one twigging to the whole, maybe this is the ring thing, right? No, I think not, said Trotter. I think Sam was right. He did not wish us to go to death in Mordor, and saw no other way to prevent that but by going alone and secretly. No, I think not, said Trotter. He had a... something happened on the hill to make him fly. I do not know all, but I know this. Boromir tried to take the ring by force. Exclamation of horror from Legolas and Gimli. Think not ill of him, said Trotter. He paid manfully and confessed. Right, so, okay, don't worry about it. Right, he's good. He confessed and repented, and um, yeah, Karita loves better from love than we from wisdom. Um, yes, he knew it better from love than we from wisdom. Um, Karita, you hear the echo of of Elrond's words in that, right? Um, when he he says Merry and Pippin should go along because it would be better to trust to their friendship than to great wisdom, right? Rather than doing something smart, uh, let's uh, let's give in to their Let's give in to their love. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, notice that Aragorn, 
Trotter, Ingold, Elfstone, is um, is dismissing Gimli's hint at some negative reason, like it's a bad sign that Frodo left without a word. Um, and Trotter says, no, 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 I, I, Sam was right. And he puts it in a really positive light. He did not wish us to go to death in Mordor. Well, that's good, right? Good that he didn't wish us to go to death in Mordor. Um, yeah, yeah. The Ranger, James suggests we call him, right? <laughs> Trot Golfenstone, Carita. Okay, <laughs> that'll that'll kind of work. Um, yeah. Yeah. Josiah points out, interestingly, that he'd never realized how priestly the image of Aragorn with Boromir was until he read that Boromir had confessed to Trotter. Yeah. It does put him in uh, a much more explicitly kind of priestly role, um, even granting absolution, right? Nay, you have conquered, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Again, you see how those three factors that I pointed to at the beginning, right? The development of the Lothlorien story and the way that that changes the whole frame and set up for the breaking, uh, the, the evolving idea of the story of Frodo and Sam going to Mordor and how they get there and under what circumstances they leave, and then third, the story of Boromir and his journey from being the traitor uh, and then eventually the you know, the Quisling who's going to go and, and uh, defect to uh, Saruman um, and seeing his re- redemption and his tragic but sad death. Um, you know, these things are the things which turn this moment and the, and through it transform it. We need now the orcs to come and kill Boromir. And since they come and kill Boromir, they're there to take Merry and Pippin away and that changes the lives of Merry and Pippin and opens up the whole Rohan thing, right? As we'll see in the next chapter, which we'll do next week. Um, Similarly, uh, you know, Frodo and Sam's journey and how we're understanding, you know, Marielle, some of those questions you were asking, how are we understanding Gollum thematically? How are we understanding Frodo and what's going on with Frodo, right? Again, those things are emerging from this, you know, continuous recapitulation of, of the breaking of the fellowship. Um, so, uh, anyway, yeah, so that's, um, it's really interesting to see how the breaking of the fellowship becomes this sort of nexus for all of these different storylines. And really the, since it ends up going the direction that it does go, that's where we're going to get the extreme prolonging of the story. Right. Um, that's why we're not going to be one chapter, one chapter, one chapter through to the end there, as Tolkien was suggesting um, back in that earlier outline. All right. Um, I will. Um, we'll come back um, next time. We'll continue on with the Rohan chapter and move forward doing pretty well at staying pretty close to our pay. I'm like one chapter behind, uh, but uh, it's OK. We're doing fine. Um uh, and I, John, I, I knew we weren't going to get to the last chapter because I didn't even make slides for it. So yeah, I only have one slide left and I could do it, but I'm deliberately saving it for next time because I want to start with it next time instead of ending with it this time. So, 
Uh, so there we go. I didn't quite finish my slides on purpose. <laughs> okay. Thanks, everybody, for joining me tonight. I will see you back. Let's see what's next week. Yes, next week is the 25th. I'll be here. So I uh, look forward to seeing you guys next week. Uh, and uh, I will. And by the way, okay. All right. I'm not trying to tease you. The subject of the next slide is Tolkien's doodling. Uh, on the back of his paper. So um, we'll, we'll talk. We'll start talking about Tolkien's doodles uh, next week. Anyway, okay. Thanks very much, everybody. See you next Wednesday. Bye now.